0: So today I want to talk to you about uh, uh, a miracle, Uh, one of Jesus' most famous miracles, and it's found in the book of John. It's the miracle where Jesus actually multiplied loaves and fishes. And this may be Jesus' most famous miracle. Uh, He supplied what the disciples didn't have. So if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 6. If you don't, that's all right. You can turn in your phone to John chapter 6. But still, if that's not all right, you can follow on the screens with me. So let's read this story together. I'll read it. You just follow along silently. Uh, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw... The, sign, the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a bread, uh, when he saw a great crowd of people coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy up enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another disciple, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among you, uh, go among so many? Uh, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Okay, I don't know where you're at, but if you are a Bible nerd, fun fact for you, uh, the the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes is the only miracle apart from Jesus' resurrection that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Uh, so there's the resurrection that's mentioned, and then this one, the, and this only one that happened before. And the reason that they do that is because it's important. We need to understand what's going on here. And the story actually takes place on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was far away from any other town, with the exception of a few small fish, fishing villages that may have dotted uh, the seashore, uh, but it's really out in the middle of nowhere, and there is a great crowd that has gathered to, uh, and is following Jesus. And they kept on following him because he kept on doing miracles. If you went into a town and you healed everyone in the town, you're going to get a crowd to follow you. So that's what happens. Originally, he was trying to go out and just spend time with the 12 disciples. But all these people followed him out into the middle of nowhere. The other thing I want you to see before we really get going is that these loaves that were mentioned here, these aren't loaves as we would think of them. Like if you go to the grocery store and you go to the bread aisle and you get like a big loaf of Wonder Bread, it wouldn't be like that. These are basically like little pancakes or pitas that would be cooked on an open fire next to a stone. And somehow Jesus miraculously multiplies these five little flat cakes of bread and these little fish to feed not just 5,000 men, but that, that was just the count of men. He's actually feeding way more. So, back in these days, you only counted men. I know, we've been able to overcome that. But they, back in the day, they, they didn't do that. They just counted them men. And so, most of these men probably had wives and children with them. So, this is about uh, a miracle for about twenty to 25,000 people. That's a lot of people. Now, this is a genuine miracle. The miracle is not, as some people have tried to naturalistically explain or interpret the story, that Jesus approached a little boy to share his lunch, and then everyone else saw this act of generosity, and they were struck to the heart, and they started to share their lunches, and so now you have this miraculous potluck where everyone starts sharing their favorite guacamole recipe or Jane's fruitcake surprise. This was not the world's first church potluck. It was a miracle. And Jesus took five little pancakes, and he multiplied them so there was enough bread to feed 20,000 people. Jesus saw this. And I'd like to point out some things, uh, some steps that took place in this story before Jesus did the miracle. And I think that's really what, you know, how do we prepare? The title of the message, How Do We Prepare for a Miracle? There's some steps that we need to understand to how to prepare for a miracle. The first thing, if you want to prepare for a miracle, is this. Uh, the disciples saw a need, and Jesus saw a need. Miracles begin with an awareness of need. Blessings that we receive often bring about a new need. Look at this situation with Jesus Jesus is healing people, people are meeting God, but all this blessing brought about a new need, and the crowd is hungry. Miracles begin when we become aware of a need. And do you know why some of you don't see miracles in your life? It's because you're out of touch with the needs of people. And you're out of touch with the needs around you. You, um, It's easy to be out of touch with me. Uh, The crowd is hungry. Uh, The the people you see in your life, uh, they may be hungry, but you'd rather keep the status quo, even if it's at a very low level. So maybe we might say things like this. Well, maybe as long as uh, my kids aren't doing drugs, that I'm aware of, uh, so as long as I'm not getting calls to the police, then I'm okay. Or maybe as long as there's not any major fights between myself and my spouse, as long as like, uh, they're not complaining very much, then everything is okay. Uh, I just got a promotion at work, uh, things are going well, I bought a new car, I just went surfing last weekend, the waves were so good, no need to worry about it. As long as things are peaceful in my neighborhood, things are peaceful at work, as long as I'm not having any problems with anyone, then I'm okay. One of the profound reasons that we see very few miracles is that we become too content with the status quo and we're not aware of need. Jesus, on the other hand, sees need. And do you know what Jesus sees when he looks around Los Angeles? He sees thousands, millions of spiritually starving people. He doesn't look at people and say, oh, they're at peace and their lives are going pretty well as long as they're not getting arrested. No, he sees marriages that are in trouble. And he sees people without peace. And they've got the really cool wood door framed on the beautiful house. And they've got the two Teslas in the driveway. And he also sees people without peace in the not-so-nice neighborhoods. And he sees people who are or kids. He sees kids who are completely alienated from their parents, and parents who are alienated from their kids. He sees children who are uh, like in, in situations that are not so good. He sees single people who are lonely. He sees people spending six hours a day flipping through their phone, just staring at their screen, uh, and that, that's the status quo. He sees spiritually starving people. He sees men and women who have no purpose in life other than to go have a few drinks and hook up. He sees thousands of fatherless children uh, and, boys and uh boys without parents, without any healthy male role models. He sees boys and girls uh, in a system that predestines many of them to go to jail. He even sees he even sees confused young men that go into bars and shoot them up. He sees them. He sees children at home without any support. He sees single moms who are working and they're tired, working to the bone. And he, most of all, he sees people who are utterly disconnected from their Father in Heaven. People who don't know their Creator, the, the, the Savior that has died for them to save them. And Jesus says to Pacific City Church, he says, you give them something to eat. And I believe that almost every miracle that God does begins with somebody getting in touch with the need. Now, there's a way to distance ourselves from this. We can try out, uh, try to get out of our responsibility with others like the disciples did. We read in Mark's account of the same story. In the book of Mark, it's, uh, Philip actually says, send them away, Jesus, so they can go get something to eat. And, uh, you know, when we see need, we can most certainly do this too. We can say, hey, it's not my responsibility. I'm busy with my own career. Things are happening for me. Send people away. Let them figure it out themselves. Or you might say, you know what? I'm actually not that healthy of a person. I actually have a lot of personal brokenness. Send the woman away to find a counselor. Let her find a counselor. Hey, I just had a new baby. I've got to take care of my own kids. You know, let this, I pay taxes. Let the school take care of it. And Jesus says to Pacific City Church, there are thousands of needy people in Los Angeles, and they are your responsibility. You go feed them. So the first thing that we need to do as a church is to pray and say God give me eyes to see let me know what's going on around me help me be aware i'm not i don't want to live with the status quo i want more give me your awareness jesus we want to see people the way you see people the world just isn't made up of these tiny little political factions with whom I disagree with. Uh, The world is not made up of people who scare me when I try to go to my car late at night, but the world is made up of people who you've made, God. Give me eyes to see what you're doing. Well, we also see that uh, miracles not only begin with awareness of me, but God's miracles often begin with a major faith test. Uh, in John 6, uh, 5 through 7, it says this. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd of people come toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And so, miracles often begin with a great test of faith. Sometimes we can be so spiritually dull as believers that we don't understand that what's happening to us in the moment is actually a test. And just about every single day, God springs up a test on you and me. Do you remember pop quizzes in school? I don't think that they've been banned. Has anyone, that everyone did a pop quiz? Have no, they been banned for our self-esteem issues or whatever? Uh, that's the joke. That wasn't even a joke. Because anyone, I can't see any hands. No one took a pop quiz? Well, well, okay, so I saw one. You and me and nobody else took pop quizzes. I had to take them and they were terrible. Uh, well, the, you know, the, you know, I was such a good student. They were just poorly written Pop quizzes. Anyway, I remember uh, regularly, you know, the teachers would say, "Okay, I want you to put away your books and your pens. Uh, keep out your, take out a pencil. Put away your books. Put away your notes. Time for a pop quiz." And I would love to be prepared in advance, uh, but that's really not going to happen. We often want to be prepared in advance for pop quizzes. We want to be prepared in advance for the tests that God gives us, but we don't have time to prepare for those tests that God may be giving us. So let me just share with you some of the most common tests that God will most certainly give you if you are a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't worry about it. You can just try to interpret the tests you go through in some other way. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I would expect these three things. Uh, The first test, there is uh, the test of continuing to trust God and his goodness when life is different. Now, for example, in your life, you may suddenly discover that you have a physical illness, a problem, a cancer, something, some sort of disease in you or a loved one. And in that moment of discovery, there's a test in there. But that moment is, do I, what do you say? Do I still believe that God loves me and that he's in control of my life, even though I'm suffering or a relative of suffering or having a problem? Or you have a sudden financial crisis. You may lose a job. You know, Someone may die in your family or you may have a falling out with a spouse. Hidden in Sudden crises is often a test of faith. Do I believe in the moment that the love of God is is for me and that he is in control? And so the test, let's talk about the first one, the test of our friendship with Jesus. What do I mean? Well, the Lord will present to you this question. Will you still love me, even if you don't, for a period of time, get what you think what you need out of your relationship with me? And Jesus will speak to us and say, you you say you are my friend. Is that true? Do you really want to be my friend? Do you love me for me or only what I give you? Do you want me for me or do you only want what I give? Would it be better? Would it be happier if I just supplied all your needs? If I was just a little genie in a bottle who popped out and just gave you whatever you want? Or would you rather have me being connected to me? Like, are, are you? Would you rather be in a real relationship with me? You know, friendship is... Is not determined by us presenting the Lord with our list of acceptable outcomes. Friendship with Jesus means that we tear up the list of what we want from God. We say, and I, I would, you hear me out here, it's perfectly alright for you to plead your case with God. Just think about Jesus right before, uh, you may not know this story, but Jesus right before he goes and dies on the cross, he pleads his case with God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, please don't send me to do this. It's alright for you to plead your case with God, but it is not alright to make your friendship with God contingent upon him giving you the outcome you want. And Jesus asks you, will you still be my friend if your marriage continues to be unhappy as it is? Will you still be my friend if you remain single and unmarried, like forever? Will you still be my friend if you lose a job? Will you still be my friend if I don't heal you or heal a loved one? Will you still be my friend if I do not quickly save the one you have been preparing or praying for? Tests. Friendship. Second test. Second test is what I call the attractive alternative. Attractive alternative. The test of the attractive alternative. You might want to call this the lower cost option. And you're clear that God has called you to do something. He's called you to a certain task. Maybe he's called you to a certain type of work. Uh, Maybe God is requiring you to obey in a particular area of your life in a certain way. And you become clear about that and you're convinced of the call of God and your life and and you want to do the thing. And consistently, after hearing the call of God, there's usually the test of the attractive alternative. It is often a, a compromise to the vision, the work that God has called you to do or the commandment that he has given you to follow through with. And so, for instance, you aren't happy in your marriage. Uh, you, you haven't been happy for a long time, God will tell you over and over again in the scriptures that he hates divorce, and uh, divorce is really bad. And when you look at Christian divorce rates, they're really no different than the divorce rates of the rest of the world. And you say, well, God can never really want me to be unhappy. There has to be a lower cost option than staying faithful in an unsatisfying marriage. Lower cost option. Uh, Or more possibly, maybe you feel called to Christian ministry. And it's going to involve a substantial life change. And it may involve a struggle between you and your parents who spent all this money giving you an education. Or a spouse who says, wait, this is new information. We didn't agree on this. Or a boyfriend or girlfriend, like, you know, how is this going to work if you're doing the thing with the thing in the ministry? And they don't understand why you would choose such a path for your life. It might involve a career loss, a loss of prestige, a loss of status, but you're going down the road, you're headed towards Christian ministry or whatever it is, and suddenly the door you were waiting for before finally opens in a business, in a career path, maybe something in entertainment that you've been wanting for, and you can, you're can you trying to leave that world behind, and you want, you, want to, you want to stay put on the vision, but you could stay put and go for the thing that seems to be attractive. And you can continue to have the respect of the people you admire most in your life, and they'll love you, where it's safe for you, it keeps things healthy with mom, it's good for your children, Uh, it keeps uh, things from going uh, out, uh, the fire going out with your romantic interest, it's a nice lower cost option. Now, I don't know what your situation is in terms of lower cost options, if you even have one right now, but I've rarely seen the working of a miracle where a person wasn't confronted somewhere along the line with an attractive alternative to obedience to the will of God. And one of the confirming things that I know is that if you have been called by God to do something, and there will be almost an immediate something that is presented to you, and there will be an inner struggle in your mind, and you'll think, well, maybe I can just fit these two things together. Maybe somehow I can continue to obey God, and maybe I I won't have to pay the high cost. And throughout your Christian walk, God is going to speak to you, many of you, about what he has called you to do and who he has called you to be. And for many of you, it's going to be clear as you pray and say, God, open my heart. I really want to hear from you what I'm to do. And he's going to give that information to you, but he is also going to test you. And for a little while, you'll probably be super excited about what's going on. It's going to be really great. And then all of a sudden, you'll be tempted with some sort of attractive alternative. And you'll say, can I get by with a lesser amount? Is there a lower cost substitute where I can still serve you, and where you know I can still keep all my stuff? got the test of the attractive alternative. Uh, there's also a third test, the test of inadequate supply. Look what it says in uh, verse uh, seven to nine. It says, "Philip answered them, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite." Another one of his disciples, Andrew, and Peter, brothers, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Here is the test of the inadequate supply. Philip and Andrew are engaged in a little mental arithmetic here. Philip is calculating the financial cost of uh, feeding so many people, and Andrew's counting the amount of people... Uh, that the food, that the food could handle, like, and so you see, well, we got five barley loaves, we got two fish, and we have five thousand men, and maybe some of the people brought their uh, wives and children with them, and so there's about twenty thousand people. Let's see, twenty thousand into five loaves of bread. I don't know that oh, Jesus Christ! Not enough. And one of the tests that the Lord will regularly test you with, and He will test me with, is the test of inadequate supply. You will be put in a situation in which you will do the math. And you will discover that your resources are completely inadequate to succeed in what you're trying to do. And the math just won't add up. And you'll feel like God is telling you to give or to obey in a certain area of your life. And you just don't have what it takes. Have you ever come up short? I have. You look at yourself. You look at your resources and you say... You just don't have what it takes. Well, let me offer your word of encouragement to you. When you feel inadequate, you are inadequate. You are totally inadequate. You know, I should just end the service right now. Hey, guess what? You're inadequate. We'll see you all next week. <laughs> just kidding. You're inadequate. You don't have what it takes. And so am I. I am inadequate. And the gospel tells us we look into our accounts and we see insufficient funds. Every time we go to write a check to God, we bounce the check. We don't have enough righteousness in our account. We don't have enough worthiness in our account. We don't have enough love or goodness in the account to satisfy the debt that we owe to the bank of heaven. We just don't have it. And the check that you draw on your account will always... Always bounce. It doesn't matter if you got up early and prayed this morning, and it doesn't matter if you've been walking with Christ for twenty years. It doesn't matter, like if you if you we were really worshiping hard during our worship service. You know what I mean? Like you're, <laughs> uh, your hands are up, and you're like, I don't even know where I'm not even aware. Like it doesn't matter what you do if you ever rely on what you have done or what you produce to pay off God's demands. You will always. Bounce the check. Now here's the good news. The good news is that Christ supplies everything we need. He puts all that we need into our account as a gift. It is a gift, friend. The issue is not our inadequacy. It is Christ's adequacy. The issue is not our insufficiency or our incompetence or our lack of goodness. It is Christ's sufficiency. It's his competence and it's his goodness. The test When you run out of supply, my friends, is this, is Christ plus nothing enough? And some of you have a child, some of you have a spouse, and some of you have a friend, and some of you even have a roommate, and that you are trying to motivate them toward God, and you push, and you prod, and you talk, and you discuss, and you argue, you shed tears, and nothing seems to work in terms of motivating them towards a life with Jesus. No one wants to respond to you. And you strategize. You do the mental arithmetic. And you realize that you, have the, you, you cannot supply the motivation in another person's life. You just can't do it. Well, how is the hunger of the people satisfied? It wasn't by chopping up a fish into 20,000 parts. The crowd's hunger was satisfied by a miracle from Jesus when he supplied the loaves and the fish. He supplied what the people could not. Let me ask you a question. Is there an area in your life where you have to confess that you've run out of resources? Good. Because the inadequate supply test, it's real, my friend. And once you've run out of patience, once you've run out of what you need, God can supply what you need. You've run out of patience for that person, God can give you the patience you need for that person You've run out of patience at your job. Your heart has grown cold. God can warm it up again. Jesus can motivate you in your job. He can take your little bit of faithfulness, your little bit of obedience, your little bit of prayer, and he can multiply it so the entire supply is met. God comes along, my friend, and he gives us great things and he calls us to big things, but he tests us. The life that I'm living and the life you are living is a test. God is saying, I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you. And there are millions of starving people in Los Angeles. There are millions of people who are starving spiritually in our world. Just look at what happened this week. It is a tough world. And Jesus says, you go give them something to eat. You feed them. But then he's going to test us to see how we do it. John chapter 6, verse 6. It says, uh, this is really interesting. He said, um, he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to say. You know, nothing catches Jesus by surprise. Jesus already knew what he. It says he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip had no idea. Philip, Philip was the one saying this. Philip had no idea how the test was going to turn out, but Jesus did. Jesus knew. And Jesus is not in heaven fretting like, "Oh myself," because he wouldn't say, "Oh my God." He's like, "Oh myself. How, what going to do? Oh myself. How do I do this? I don't know what I'm going to do." Uh, this is this is such a surprise to me. It turns out there's way more people than fish. There's no test. There's no challenge. There's nothing that comes our way that Jesus hasn't providentially ordered for us. And it doesn't mean that we get to understand everything and all the reasons from time to time. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is always going to explain himself to us. But it does mean, however, that providentially he is in control of whatever test comes our way. And while we sit here and we fret and we test... Jesus already knew what he was going to do. When you are fretting and when you are sweating through any of the tests God puts you, you through, the Lord, you need to know this, the Lord already knows what he's going to do. And while we might, you know, there's a, a great reformer, his name is Martin Luther. Um, he once said, While I sit here sipping my little Wittenberg beer, uh, the kingdom of God marches on. The kingdom of God marches on. He already knows what he's going to do. In, in, in Santa Monica, we might say, "Well, I sit here sipping my almond milk latte at Primo Paso on Montana Avenue with a gift card from Pacific City Church, the kingdom of God marches on. It marches on, folks. No amount of us fretting and sweating gets it done. He already knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do with you. He knows what he's going to do with the call of God on your life. How you're going to respond to it? He already knows the supply you need. He knows the supply that the, your family and the people around you need, and he knows the supply or he, and he knows what this church needs to. Last point I want to make: God's miracles often require our participation. participation. Yeah, that's good. We maybe get into call and response. Well, oh yeah, we're a new church. We can decide that uh, require our participation. Yes. In verse 10 it says this, Jesus said, have the people sit down, There is plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them, that means like 20,000 people, uh, and Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. Uh, in another account in, uh, in Mark, uh, it actually says that Jesus gave the loaves of fishes to the disciples to set before the people, and in that account I think it's actually really important Because the disciples were the means by which Jesus did the miracle, the disciples had to participate in the moment to see the miracle happen, and that's true. God's miracles often require our participation. We want God to speak into into existence all kinds of things, like we want Him to talk to our spouse. Lord, please help my spouse. We want to come down from heaven and help and bring healing, restore a broken marriage, reconcile a broken relationship, uh, help this person feel cleansed and healed from a broken past. We want God to intervene from heaven and just do it himself. Send your miracle directly down from heaven, Lord. Lord, we want you to deal with this crisis you know, this issue of crime in our city, the issue of violence, the issue of young men who feel like they need to do a certain thing to hurt others. Lord, stop this city from being so violent. God, so many people are using drugs like, like that are really bad and people are dying. There is there is an opioid epidemic in this. God, just send something, a lightning bolt down from heaven so people just stop using drugs. Fix, stop child abuse fix our broken schools, turn the children in our city just automatically into responsible adults. Oh, there's so many people out of work, God, like help supply jobs, Help free us from addiction, save women from lives of prostitution. Lord, there's so many problems in we'll just change our world. Give us peace. Give us security. And we pray these prayers and the Lord says, you go and do it. You go and do it. And I'll be with you. Yeah, I, I, swear, I, I swear to myself, I'll be with you. That's what God says, essentially. You see, Christianity is not a spectator sport; it is a participatory sport. Everybody gets to play. God's miracles will often require our participation and faith. And here's what, here's what we see here. It, it, like, if you look at the Mark account, which we did, we looked at the one in John. It, like, you know, he, it says that the disciples said he gave little pieces of bread and little pieces of fish, and then he sends them up the hill. And he's like, okay, now Peter, you go up to this side of the hill and you feed these 400 people. And Peter gets this little thing and he's like, what is going on here? And then he's like, Philip, uh, you are down to me. Here, a, here, catch this fish. He throws a tiny fish his way. He catches these. So and then you go down to the hill and feed those 2,000 people. And Peter's looking at the bread and the fish and he's like, this is crazy. I mean, those guys are fishermen. They're hungry people. They're going to, like, eat me alive if I go up there and say, okay, here's dinner. And he looks at the bread. He's trying to figure out. He says, well, you know, maybe if I just tear here and I'll give the the, the biggest guy over here the biggest piece, maybe you won't beat me up. Um, and then, and, and then, like, that's when the frustration says, why does God make me, why does Jesus make me do all these crazy things? And he's marching up the hill with a tiny piece of bread. And, look, da, 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 and then all of a sudden he starts to tear the bread off. And there's enough bread. And then that person's tearing it. And they start tearing it. And all of a sudden, the ripple effect starts happening. The miracle starts happening. More pieces of bread turn into more pieces of bread. And they start multiplying. Now, I believe that the miracle actually happened through the hands of the disciples. But it required their participation. It required their faith. Now, I don't think that Jesus suddenly uh, did an airdrop of, like, bread. There's a bunch of French loaves came flying in, and then go he got a back of a pickup truck. He's like, "Okay, back the herring up, beep beep." And so, it's, and all the herring piles out on top of the kid. And he's like, "You shouldn't have done that." He's like, and she's like, "Sorry." Uh, like, and the thousand, you know—this a thousand gallons of herring and like French bread. And it, it happened in that strange little participation. You know, the passage ends with twelve baskets being collected of leftovers. That's a lot of bread. The Lord has enough supply to meet our needs, my needs, and the needs of this church. There is enough to go around, and then there's more. There's more. And brothers and sisters, when I see you and I see this church, God invites each of us to step out and invite and and experience miracles. We don't just get to like kind of do it; like we get to participate, but. Um, I just think that like, we've got to invite it, we've got to ask it, we've got to say, God, I want you to do something in me. God, I want you to do something in my friend. God, there's something happening in this city, I, uh, you know, I please do a miracle. And what I know is that if we are willing to do, if we're willing to ask, and if we're willing to step out, we will begin to experience real, genuine miracles in this congregation. And it won't be cheap substitutes, it won't be coincidences, it won't be some distant theology that's crafted in an ivory tower. We will be experiencing God as he was meant to be experienced today. A God that's full of power and love and grace where we get to be amazed at the abundance and goodness that he wants to supply us with. And I'm not just talking money, I'm not just talking about like you having a better job and having more margins so that you can go on bigger vacations. Talking about the things that he wants to do in your soul, the things that he wants to do in the lives of people around you and around me. He wants to do more, but our participation is required. Will you stand with me?